2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Governor Gavin Newsom declared this week that 39 more California counties are in a drought emergency. But unlike during the last major drought, the state has no plans to impose rules against wasting water. We look at why. But first, celebrated graphic novelist Alison Bechtel muses about the origins of her obsession with exercise, from skiing to martial arts to the latest seven-minute workout, in her new memoir titled The Secret to Superhuman Strength. For Bechtel, the fixation has deep emotional and spiritual roots, furthering her quest to get out of her head and transcend her ego. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Alison Bechtel, best known for her graphic memoirs Are You My Mother and Fun Home, which was adapted into a Tony Award-winning musical, is a bit of an exercise phonetic. But don't get her wrong. She's not good at sports. She declares in the first pages of her new memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Bechtel says she's what you'd call a vigorous type. Alison Bechtel, welcome to Forum. Thank you, Mina. I'm very happy to be here. What do you mean by you're a vigorous type? Because from the get-go, that line made me laugh out loud.
3: (laughs) Well, I just have a lot of energy and I'm always trying to like disperse it in one way or another. And exercise is very helpful for that.
2: Yeah, you did a lot from like karate to yoga to cross-country skiing and biking and running and hiking. Do you remember when you fell in love with exercise? Because as you point out, when you were born, you know, 60 years ago, exercising wasn't really a thing. Yeah, it
0: really
3: wasn't. I mean, I was very lucky as a, you know, six or seven year old to get taken downhill skiing with my family. We Mm. always did that um, when I was a kid, but it wasn't, there weren't any sports or, you know, gymnastics or swimming. There was nothing like that that I Uh, learned as a kid. Um, It was when I was a teenager, one day I realized I was starting to feel tired and fatigued. (laughs) As you know, around the time of puberty, that was a very weird um, side effect of getting older to me. And I decided I was going to do something about it. I didn't want to be lethargic. So my mother had a book of like calisthenic exercises lying around and I started doing those exercises. And I think that's when I fell in love when I saw that there really was a quite immediate um, effect to doing these exercises, my body felt better, and I, I had more energy.
2: It's interesting that you did not want to have that experience of feeling lethargic. And you knew that at a really young age. I remember looking at your book and seeing this panel where you were gazing intently at a comic book where there's this guy in a, a leopard speedo and you're thinking about your childhood yearning to be as jacked as Charles Atlas, as you put it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and I was wondering uh, if that was part of it for you. Like, did you want to be muscular? What was your fixation? You called it a lifelong fixation with muscles.
3: Yes. Okay. So there's an even earlier um, root <laughs> of, of my obsession, and that is my childhood comic books, which I read, you know, when I was a very small kid, you know, five, six, seven, and there would always be these ads, even in the comic books that were for little girls, like Little Lulu. You would see these. May, maybe I'm misremembering that. Maybe I saw these <laughs> in some other comic book, but there were they were omnipresent. These Charles Atlas ads. Um. I think everybody of my generation remembers this little comic strip of like the big bully kicking sand on the little skinny guy at the beach and how the little skinny guy sends away for the Charles Atlas manual and he gets big and strong too. And then he can like sock the bully in the jaw next time he tries something. It was a tremendously satisfying narrative for a small child. Uh, And eventually I sent away, not for the Charles Atlas manual, but for some other thing I saw in a comic book, which promised the secret to superhuman strength. It was very disappointing when it arrived. It was just some kind of incomprehensible uh, self-defense manual <gasps> that I just shoved in the back of my closet. But uh, that idea of the secret to
2: superhuman strength remained in my head.
3: Yeah. And I've been looking
2: for it ever since, I guess. <laughs> it, it really did grab you. It did feel like, as you were mentioning skiing earlier, and it did feel like, you did have these moments um, during skiing where you, you sort of did discover the secret to superhuman strength, but each time it wasn't in any way necessarily connected to physical strength.
3: Yeah, that's true. It, it, the book, in the end, is really not about physical strength at all, um, but something much deeper, something more me- metaphysical about the nature of the self. I feel like in a way I've been writing about the self and identity in one way or another over the course of my career. Um, and in this book, I'm actually writing about a, a whole new level where I'm trying to get rid of myself, trying to trying to get beyond my identity as a separate person and just uh, transcend somewhere. Did you know that's what you were writing when you started to write this book? You know, I never really know what I'm writing when I begin a project. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm forced to write up a proposal, you know, in order to sell a book. But then I kind of uh, have to figure something out. Um, I, I never stick to the proposal. Uh, because I, how can you know what you're going to write until you've written it? So I require a long period of exploration. I knew that exercise interested me, it's something I've loved and been very passionate about, but I was not quite sure where it was going to lead um, because the more I worked at it, the more I saw it was not just about these activities and the lessons or skills I got from them, it was really about something something beyond all that.
2: Yes, I think I read at one point that you thought, oh. I'm going to write a light book because my previous books were were very deep and, and, and intense and heavy and that you're going to write a book about an activity that you do to help you get out of your head and that it would be sort of lighter and uh, maybe even easier <laughs> to write. Yes. When, <laughs> when you get into this book as a reader, you realize that as you're exploring your relationship to exercise, that your book is also really becoming about Existence, which is a massive topic. I know.
3: Yeah, it it got uh, much more intense than I had anticipated, but it was also fun and exciting to to go there. Um, I, sorry, Mina, I'm uh, (laughs) I'm spacing out a little bit. I'm really sorry. I've been doing this intense publicity push, and my brain is breaking down. You know, there's there's something.
2: Yeah, well, basically, one of the things that I was struck by was how you start to write this book, you say that it's going to be this light and easy thing, it doesn't become that. And then you were saying that it was fun and exciting to sort of realize it was much bigger than that. But I guess the question that I'm, I'm wondering is, so now when you exercise, because in many ways, it was a way to sort of quiet your mind and lose yourself, does it still have that component for you? Uh, as you do it now given the fact that you've thoroughly examined it and it's played so many different roles
3: it does actually that was my fear for a while that i was taking this one place where i escaped from my cerebral you know overly determined mental life and decided to write a book about it thereby ruining it but that <laughs> didn't happen i feel like exercise is pretty much um it's bulletproof you can't you can't take away that effect it's just Magical! What happens when you have a prolonged aerobic workout? Yeah, um, you're a runner, Mina. I just discovered. Is that? Are you still running?
2: No, not not nearly as much. And you know what's really funny is a lot of it has to do with the fact that I have a lot of hip pain now <laughs> when I run. Oh dear! And so when you I'm were sorry. writing about that uh, in your book, uh, I thought, oh wow, I can so completely relate to this um, in terms of just realizing that my body is changing and it's one of those things that Uh i really feel like you explore in terms of that that your body you're, you're almost in some ways fighting that process of your body changing uh throughout well
3: yeah i i've been working on this book for the past it took a long time it took about eight years um and so essentially i spent my 50s working on it and that's the time when you really start to lose your strength and and flexibility too and, and speed. Like I was I was continuing to do all the things I had always done, but really noticing that I was not getting any better at them. In fact I was getting worse, which is quite disconcerting. Did you know, you, after a year of just sorry, go ahead.
2: No, no, no. After a year of just
3: I, I was. I meant after a lifetime of continually feeling like I was increasing in strength.
2: Right. Do you feel like now exercising is a way of of fighting that that aging process? Um, yes.
3: I I, <laughs> I. I think I used to have this sort of illusion that it was actually somehow going to keep me from dying altogether, which. I'm now much more realistic about. I don't think that's going to happen. But when I was younger, yeah, I think that there was this fantasy of immortality connected with it, but no, I don't, I don't think that anymore, but, and I don't know if, I mean, I think, you know, all the studies say exercise is very good for you as you age, you know, weight bearing exercise for your bones and various things help your brain. Um, But sometimes I wonder, is there really any point to being in really great shape if your mind mind goes? You know, maybe maybe it's better not to work out all the time.
2: Is that what you mean when you talk about interdependence?
3: Well, yeah, I mean my great fear is not so much of dying but of becoming dependent on other people to help me, you know, do the basic things of everyday life. I find that really scary. And I know that if I ever do become ill, that's going to be a huge challenge. Um, So also one of the, one of my quests in this book was to try to come to terms with that, to try to make myself become more comfortable and to really understand that interdependence is just a fact of life. Uh, You know, whether you're ill or immobile or not, I mean, we need people (laughs) in all kinds of ways in our everyday life, even, even when you're, physically
2: fit. We're talking with I'm Allison. not sure how
3: I'm doing with that.
2: <laughs> well, I, I want to invite our listeners into the conversation. We're talking with Allison Bechtel, graphic novelist, whose new memoir is The Secret to Superhuman Strength. And I'm curious, as you're listening to this conversation, if there is a connection between exercise and enlightenment, I guess, essentially for you listeners. You can tell us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Of course, you can also call us with any questions you have for Alison Bechtel about, about her life, her art. Um, do you identify with her obsession with exercise over the decades? You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is more. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to Alison Bechtel about her lifelong fitness odyssey and the meaning behind it, which is the topic of a new graphic memoir titled The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Bechtel is author of Fun Home, our... You My Mother, and the celebrated uh, comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For. She's also known for the Bechtel wallace Test, which rates movies on whether they include at least one scene in which two women talk to each other about something other than men. What questions do you have for Alison Bechtel? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Do you identify with her fitness quest for you? Is there a connection between exercise and enlightenment? Uh, before I get to the first call, Alison Bechtel, I wanted to ask you about gear. One of the things that's pretty clear in your book is that you're a bit of a gearhead. And yeah. uh, first, what do you have, did you think about why in this book, like where that came from? You know, I
3: did not really pursue it to its roots. I mean, I'm not a, I'm a anti-capitalist person, but th- I sort of make an exception when it comes to gear. I love all this stuff. I love the clothing, you know, the technical clothes. I love the ski equipment. I love all the biking, you know, doodads. Um, It just all seems like a very productive use of human innovation to be making these amazing things for us to have fun with.
2: I was struck by how early on, there's a panel where you're begging your mom to buy you a pair of high tops. And she's basically saying, no, that's for boys. And then you're sort of amazed later when you go skiing and you're allowed to wear these gigantic clopping ski boots. Um, Yeah. And and there's something about gear, especially in the early days that that allowed allowed you to be, or that was more androgynous. Yes.
3: Yeah. I always loved boots as a small girl. (laughs) And I was never allowed to have them, except when we went skiing. And then we just had these awesome, this was the days before plastic, you know, buckle boots. We had real leather boots with laces and um, they were intense. And I just loved them. And I loved the skis and the poles. Um, I think it just made me feel like, you know, it was a kind of superhuman strength, like a kind of survivalist thing. Like I had this equipment and I was going to take care of myself. I was going to survive, you know.
2: You seem to have this relationship with self-sufficiency. It's like something that you strive for uh, throughout the book. Um, There's this moment when you do this pull-up and you're like, wow, (laughs) I'm lifting my own weight. I'm being self-sufficient. Can you talk a little bit about where that came from? Because as we were saying later, um, you move towards an acceptance of interdependence. So the, the two seem almost like polar opposites.
3: Well, that was the great appeal of Charles Atlas as a small kid was that he seemed like he was just an island. You know, he was completely able to take care of himself. He didn't need anyone. And that was sort of a corollary of the muscles to me. Mm. And as I got older, I didn't care so much about the muscles, but I still remained attached to this idea that I was somehow, you know, emotionally dependent, that I did not need other people. So I have been dissing myself of that idea for some time that has come a little harder than letting go of the muscles. But I see that it is really necessary. If if one wants to have a happy life, you have to let other people in. You have to be vulnerable. Um, You know, you have to realize that we are all in this boat together and we need each other.
2: Why is it so hard? Is it the vulnerability piece of it?
3: Um, I, I think, you know, different people have different levels of discomfort with it, I probably have a lot of discomfort just because I of my own childhood. I feel like in some ways I kind of was left to fend for myself emotionally. So Mm. I don't have to do that anymore, but it's an ingrained habit, you know? So I'm just, I'm trying to unlearn it.
2: Well, let me go to callers and let's have Mariana in Berkeley join us. Hi, Mariana.
5: Hi there, Mina. Thank you. And um, I'm really interested in this topic because I grew up in Brazil, in southern Brazil, in Sao Paulo. And I was raised in what I called in a paper, actually, I wrote for grad school, a tyranny of slimness, meaning that Mm. we girls especially really, really had to be very, very fit. And my mother would call on me and would say, for example, oh, your pants seem tight. You need to stop eating bread and things like that. So sports for me became a chore, and I was lucky Mm. to go to a school that had, you know, we played volleyball, I played volleyball, I played handball, I played basketball, you name it, and then I got into running, and finally yoga, and now biking, but always feeling like it's something I have to do to keep fit. And true, my body has changed, I'm 62 now, so much so but today you know I found this finally found in my 60s a source of pleasure which is that I use everyday chores to exercise I do bike and I do do a little yoga but I don't and I take my my dog for walks and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but I don't force myself because I also have hip pains and you know my ankles Mm -hmm. and my knees aren't as young as they used to be (laughs) but I just wanted to say that it's been a source of enlightenment to clean I clean when I clean the house I i walk fast. And I when I that. garden <laughs> I I go around and I'm I'm trimming things and I put everything and it's like a workout. And when I do it that uh-huh. way, um it, it it to me it's a source of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And so I the just things. wanted to say that
2: Yeah, it's almost nice because you can separate it from it sounds like the sense that you have to be fit or that you have to be thin. I don't know if you have a reaction to Mariana, but one of the things she's reminding me of too is that it didn't seem like body image was a huge part of your motivation.
3: Right. I very much left body image out of the whole book just because, yeah, it's not a big issue for me. And I thought it would be interesting for a woman to write a book about exercise and not even mention that. So that was an intentional, like, lapse. But Mariana, I I feel so sad that you spent so much of your life exercising, you know, in in a kind of joyless manner for some other goal. And I'm glad you discovered how to make it fun. I, I feel like I would love to sever exercise from any notion of weight loss, like fitness does not mean thinness. Those are not at all equatable, you know. And if you're exercising for any reason besides just the joy of moving, I think it's it's bound to be, you know, kind of a slog. So I hope other people can take um, courage from your discovery of, you know, cleaning the house can be exercise. Whatever gives you pleasure um, is the thing you should
2: pursue. Mariana, thanks for the call. Let me go next to Liz in San Francisco. Hi,
6: Liz. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call, Nina. <laughs> excuse me, I was very touched by this talk because I've always been um, very athletic when, and I was skin. I'm also um, a foreigner at least uh, and an immigrant and I was Filipino. and I'm Filipino. And I, when I was young, I was always the skinniest in my family. They would call me olive oil and <laughs> very stressful family. And I would, you know, go cycling on my own. I always was outgoing and very competitive and just, uh um, Um, always doing something physically. And I'm probably the only one in my family of five that is that way. Um, I've sustained over the years, I'm now 60, about nine injuries, all from sports. And recently, I just had my second hip surgery, and I tore my clavicle in a bicycle accident in town. Um, I wanted to touch specifically about the spiritual or the personal reflection, because what happened for me is, after nine eggs, nine accidents i mean i 'm still outgoing. my son is outgoing, and I think that 's all something actually I think you pass on to your kids um, in my fifth or ninth piece of metal in my body. I found when I started pulling back because I was forced to from these accidents recently, um, I had to ask myself why am I pushing myself so hard mm-hmm. besides the you know the drive of an immigrant I kept asking why, particularly on the physical and I realized that the the physical drive uh, was uh, partly a mental drive. It was all an emotional drive that came from my parents. And I've been able to, and these injuries in a way became a blessing because it forced me to slow down, which is something I don't do. And uh-huh. I hit the, the spiritual awakening and the, the resonance of there's something more here. So I wanted to share that, but I also wanted to ask, when you started writing this book, you were talking about it wasn't, I mean, I was actually taken by your title recently, and I saw it on the New York Times, and I thought, oh, it's about being superhuman, so I first thought, so when I hear <laughs> this conversation today, I'm very touched, it's actually not about superhuman physical strength, um, but a deeper sense of self that you get to, and I wanted to know, yeah. if I'm so sorry about that, if that happened to you out of physical or physical duress or some other duress as it's happened for me. Hmm. So I just wanted to uh, put that out there. Thank you for taking my call and question.
3: Liz, thank you for that story. Um, I'm sorry that you had all those injuries, but I'm really glad that, you know, this, this spiritual awakening came out of it. I, I have never had any serious injuries. I'm always living in in fear of it, you know, because then what, what am I going to do when I can't, go for a run to clear my mind and calm down. Um, I'm very nervous about that. So you give me some hope that (laughs) maybe that will actually be a a positive experience. If I can't work out, I'll just find some other way to slow down. Um,
2: But thanks for sharing that story. One of the things that's clear is that The book is a journey um, through a lot of the processes that we just heard Liz talk about, through the need to be strong, the need to feel really inside your body (laughs) and be self-sufficient as well, and then ultimately getting to the point of interdependence. Do you feel like there's a certain pattern to that process as you hear other people describe almost similar Stages.
3: Well, you know, I, I I'm one of those people who had a very inspiring drug experience in my youth. I I took psilocybin mushrooms one day when I was 20, and I I really had a mystical experience. I felt like I understood something about myself in relation to the the universe, to the world outside of me, that I I was not separate from it. Yeah. in the way that I had always thought, you know, that I was actually a part of this huge web of existence. You know, that feeling went away when the when the effect of the drugs subsided, but the idea of that and the the memory of that blissful feeling has remained and really drives me. It's part of my exercise obsession because I do get a small hit of that feeling when I've, you know, been working out for a long time, aerobically, something just happens and you get into that kind of blissed out state, which is amazing.
2: Yeah, one of the things that's so interesting is it's not, you almost wish it could be like a one and done, like even when you realize that there is no self, like you have this great moment where you draw yeah. Margaret Fuller and she's like, oh, there is no self. And then she seems to be able to go on and live like that really well. <laughs> but <laughs> but what your book shows is that even though you may realize it, you're almost, constantly still coming up against things that would take you away from that
3: sort of enlightenment. Yeah, I feel like it was hard writing this book, which covers the course of my whole life from when I was born to the moment I finished the book, because it doesn't have a clear arc. It's not like I get better and better and finally (laughs) reach enlightenment. It's very much (laughs) a sort of spiral path of going over and over the same difficulties and challenges and maybe learning a little more each time around and maybe not. Um, But it's a, it's a complicated narrative that, that story of, you know, finding your path and somehow trying to get a little bit more outside of yourself with each pass.
2: Yeah. Well, this listener writes, I think it's an appreciation. We read Fun Home in my freshman core curriculum and it was the right book at the right time for me in terms of physicality. Physicality and spirituality, I always feel closer to God in the heat. Hot workouts like hot yoga and hot Pilates seem to be transcendent for me. Something about sweat and an empty mind gets me closer to my spirituality. I also have a partner who produces films in L.A., always teasing him about the Bechdel test. And Judd (laughs) writes, I'm close to the midpoint of the secret to superhuman strength. It reminds me a little... In love with the world. Of in love with the world, written by a Tibetan Buddhist monk who leaves his monastery for the first time at age thirty plus to find and lose, then find again his enlightened self. Are you familiar with huh. that book? In love with the world. I don't know
3: that book, but I will <laughs> check it out. I love that title. I am in love with the world.
2: <laughs> well, thanks. Oh, um, I love
3: that. I love that message about hot yoga too. I. I've I've taken a couple of those hot yoga classes and it is not for me. It's funny how everyone has their own thing that does it for them, but I felt like I was at kind of a bad orgy when I was doing hot (laughs) yoga. I was just like way too close to these
2: people. (laughs) Let me go to (laughs) Dawn in Marin. Hi, Dawn. Hi, I'm
7: still laughing about the orgy comment. <laughs> um, I am a reluctantly enthusiastic exerciser that grew up skiing, so I'm incredibly excited to read your book. And I have a non-binary lesbian child graduating from Bard College with a with written arts and theater arts degree in here in a matter of weeks. And I just want to, before I get my two questions, I just want to quickly tell you that you have been an incredibly amazing Wonderful part of our life, and I just want you to know how good you are to so many people out there. And now, my My child wants to know um, how you remember your dreams so well, and how you feel about your ratings becoming part of the Bechdel rating becoming part of pop culture.
3: (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't remember my dreams very well anymore. I went through a period of remembering them, uh, I think. Well, partly because I was in therapy and I was just going through some intense stuff and I wrote them down. That's the key. You got to keep a notebook by the bed. And when you wake up in the night, just write stuff down. Um, I, I've had, it's funny, it, I, I'm very happy about the Bechtel Test and how how it seems to have like permeated popular culture. I mean, that thing is based on a, you know a joke that I was making with my lesbian feminist friends back in 1985. So I have this sense that, at last, the, the world at large is catching up with where lesbians were, you know, 40 years ago. So that's kind of <laughs> encouraging.
2: Well, Dawn, thanks for the question. And um, as you were talking about spirals, Allison Bechtel, what I thought I overheard that you are going to be working again on dikes to Watch Out For. Is that right? Is that something that's next for you?
3: I am working on an idea for a, an animated show. I don't I I don't want to say too much about it because who knows if it will go anywhere. Um, But it's, it's exciting and fun to be revisiting those characters.
2: It makes me think about this point in, in the book where you talk about, we we do constantly try to get back to things. And there's this moment when you talk about getting back to beginner's mind and getting back to a state of your childhood. We just have about a minute left or so, but just wondering if you want to leave us with any thoughts about where you are having really looked at this journey, you do, you have achieved certain realizations, uh, certain levels of enlightenment. So where would you say you are right now in, in this journey of, of life, essentially, just what your book covers?
3: I am still traveling. I'm still journeying, but I do feel like I, I have this image of a circle, you know, that I, as a child, I had this great connection to my own own creativity and flow, and I really am determined to get back there. And I think I'm making progress.
2: Well, Alison Bechtel, it was really great to talk with you today, and, and really appreciate this new uh, graphic memoir, "The Secret to Superhuman Strength." Thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much, Mina.
2: Again, Alison Bechtel. Her previous books include Are You My Mother? Fun Home, which was adapted into a Tony Award-winning musical, and of course, The Comic Strip Dykes to Watch Out For. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments for Alison Bechtel. Stay with us as we explore California's ever-growing emergency drought. I'm Mina Kim.